This is Crossing Phase, the first podcast featuring a Christian and a Muslim talking religion and politics, as if we don't have enough controversy around already. My name is Matt Hawkins. I'm a former Southern Baptist policy director, and my friend is John Pinna. My normal co-host is John Pinna here. Uh, He uh, is currently founder and executive director of a new organization called Muslims for Muslims. You can find more information at muslimsformuslims.org. And this podcast is a collaboration between his project and uh, Roll Top Productions, which is my little uh, production thing here. Um, joining us today is a special guest, another old friend. This is kind of a in, in, this, in a series now of, of reconnecting with some of our friends from the international religious freedom space, and we'll get to our guest here shortly. Um, John, how's life treating you? What's up this week? It's, it's not too bad. I mean, yeah, we, we have only friends because we invited all of our enemies and they all said no. <laughs> So, you know, every, I think we can just say, we just, just tell it, tell our, our, uh, our listener base that, that that's, that's exactly how we, we went about it. But uh, no, things are all right. Not too bad. It's uh, a lovely day here in the Hudson Valley. I'm trying to uh, figure out uh, what, what the, what my next week is going to be. And uh, you know, we've got the, a bunch of stuff going on with uh, M4M and the international Religious Stream Roundtable. So I've got a, a little bit buried to be with work that way. Um, and I'm still trying to finish this article. Yeah. So yeah. my last yeah. bit of verifying of all this stuff uh, and getting the data set out, which should be done this week. And if that happens, this is the final peer review. And like I said, I'm hating my peers right now, but uh, yeah. uh, there's, I just, there's, take, I'm not a professor. Sitting at, yeah. You're going through the yeah, gauntlet. I'm pro- so I'm just not a professor at a college with taking your bruises. System, so. You know, yeah. I don't have means that are, that are running out and doing this stuff. So it's taken me a bit, a little bit longer to get it finished up, but I'm, I'm well, sure. I'm well. So uh, for those of you who are just joining us uh, on the YouTube channel, um, if you're not aware, this podcast is also delivered via audio, uh, wherever you find podcasts. Uh, so we'd appreciate your subscribing there and, and downloading all of our programs. Uh, you don't need to start any particular place. Um, this is not exactly a linear conversation, so you can kind of jump in where, whatever episode feels uh, interesting to you. Uh, but now we want to introduce our guest, Nathan Weininger, a friend of ours from the DC advocacy space. We'll learn more about his work uh, and who he is. Nathan, welcome to Crossing Phase. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank you for coming, um, Nathan. We my really pleasure. appreciate it. You know, very where gracious in the, of you to join us. Where in the world are you coming to us today? I am coming to you from the federal capital of the most powerful country in the world, the United States of America. So Washington, D.C. There you go. Are you and, in the metro your- area? The actual district. I'm in the district. Why not? Okay. And uh, in your honor, Nathan, I, I'm I'm using my Ebenezer's Coffeehouse mug. Uh, yes. No doubt, fond memories of meeting many friends, including you, uh, for coffee over on Capitol Hill. So we'll give a little shout out yes. there. Um, so Nathan, uh, tell us briefly. We want to we want to talk about your organization and, and where your priorities are right now. But give us just kind of a glance at um, at Twenty One Rebel Force, the organization you work for, and what your role is. And uh, then John and I are going to pepper pepper you with more questions. Awesome. Uh, Twenty One Rebel Force is a Christian faith based NGO. Uh, we're about six years old. Um, our organization is designed to do training, leadership training, advocacy, and capacity building all around international religious freedom for everyone. As a Christian faith-based NGO, um, we believe that religious freedom is a fundamental human right that exists for every human being around the world. 
Um, we believe that uh, just because you might believe something different about God than, than we do is gives governments or mobs no right to impugn the image uh, that we believe you bear. Um, and so we work across religions, we work across the aisles of politics and ideologies to both incorporate um, religious freedom, uh, where it has sort of been left behind as a core human right, and then to advance um, the capacity and the efficacy of the IRF, the international religious freedom sector. Um, we do that through coalitions, we do that through something called the IRF Roundtable, we do that through various working groups, and we also provide training and capacity building for people who are marginalized and persecuted, as well as leaders, young leaders here in America, so that people going forward will have the fire of religious freedom uh, burning and uh, the capacity to be able to advance it, um, both in policy and amongst um, their friends and family and, and workplaces. Give us a Give us a heads up uh, on Wilberforce, the name. So Wilber, uh, we think we are Wilberforce for the 21st century. Um, William Wilberforce was an abolitionist who worked tirelessly for years to advance um, abolition in the British Empire, the abolition of slavery, um, and uh, a, a, among various other um, uh, issues on rights and justice. Um, and we see the world today, a world where according to Pew, uh, Pew Research, um, about 80% lives in places with high or very high levels of persecution. Now that doesn't mean that everyone in the world, the 80% of the world is persecuted, but that, but that people live in those contexts. Um, and we see that as a vital uh, problem um, where people's dignity is denied, where people are not able to flourish um, and where uh, that right intersects with so many other um, important issues that are going on. If you think about food shortages in Nigeria, those are often driven by, um, uh, by religious persecution. If you think about uh, the mass internment of Muslims in China, um, you know, denial of habeas corpus rights, et cetera, um, those are driven by religiously motivated targeting. Um, and so we think that this is a vital um, issue today, just like William Wilberforce thought that slavery was a vital issue in his time. And we practice his model of uh, bottom up and top down. We work with top policymakers um, at the White House, at the State Department, um, in Congress, um, but we also work to mobilize as a Christian organization, primarily grassroots church, ne church networks, um, so that uh, Christians and people of other faiths too can really work to secure um, their elected representatives and various institutions around the world, their commitment to this vital human right. Right on. Thank you, Mom. I mean, it's the, the name is, a lot of people don't know that that's a guy, you know, yeah, so. Yeah, a guy. Yeah, he was a great guy. Um, yeah, you know, so they, they, they'll think Wilberforce and it's, it's very superhero-ish. So. Yeah, well, um, it's, a, it's a good name. It has the word will and force in it. And we try to will to force forward uh, this vital human right. I don't know. I just, <laughs> I, I always, always feel like, uh, then I always have to explain it comes from a guy. There's a guy. So, um, you know, before we get, you know, do a deep dive, one of the main reasons why we have you on here is our podcast is about faith in action. That's a core part of it. It's not just us two talking. Um, and, all of us have had to have rolled up our sleeves uh, on the podcast right now and gotten into, you know, gone over, gone across countries uh, and helped vulnerable populations. You don't just help Christians, you help people everywhere. But what's, before we get, do a deep dive into like faith in action, what's going on, 
maybe you could talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. And uh, because your journey didn't start in religious freedom, no. you're not, you weren't like on a mission and somewhere and all of a sudden decided you, you, you actually have a quite an interesting story about, uh, you know, artifact preservation and, you know, UK uh, hanging, having tea with the queen. So maybe we could walk us through that uh, and, uh, and then, and then, and get us to where you, how you ended up advocating for religious communities. Um, well, so I guess the place to start is when I got out of college and like a lot of people wondered, you know, what the heck my next step is going to be. I double majored in econ and theater. Um, so I tried to sort of combine those two things by working at a PBS affiliate, uh, the most watched PBS affiliate in the United States, as a matter of fact. Um, while I was there, I helped coordinate um, coalitions. I helped coordinate core messaging that would be shared across um, entities and sectors so that we could coordinate our efforts to achieve uh, greater success. But it was on issues I didn't have a fire about and I didn't particularly, that they were important, but they weren't the ones that animated me. And so I decided to go back to grad school. And, you know, it was the financial crisis of 2008, so a while ago. Um, and there were not a lot of job opportunities. So grad school, like a lot of people, made sense for me. And I decided, well, I'm just going to pick a direction and go with it until God tells me to do something else or shows me another way. Um, and so I had always cared about historic preservation. I would drive around my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, and see all of these beautiful old buildings, some of them being torn down, uh, to being replaced with parking lots and things like that. And I thought it was just a disaster. So I focused um, on cultural uh, policy, uh, primarily historic preservation on my first year at the University of Chicago. Uh, that took me through a, a lot of networking. I got um, an internship at English Heritage, which is a quasi-governmental organization um, in the UK that advises the government on historic preservation. While I was there, I started to sort of wonder if I wanted my life to really be focused on something that was um, kind of a luxury good. Once you have your food taken care of, once you have basic security taken care of, basic education, basic health, that's when you can start to work on this issue. And I was really wondering if I wanted it to be a luxury good. So I was prayer, praying about this as, as we evangelicals say, I was prayerful about it. Um, and um, one time, one day, I was at uh, Westminster Abbey uh, in London, and I was there for Evensong, which is an Anglican service, um, uh, an Anglican church service in about 5 p.m. And I was sitting there, and I was sort of asking God, why am I here? Why do I care about this thing? And I, and I had an epiphany, um, which was, here I was in this building that was, you know, nearly a thousand years old, singing songs that had been sung here for hundreds of years, and the fact that there was this physical building that was pointed at something made you confront the fact that people had spent their energies, their treasure, their blood probably in some cases to make these buildings. And these buildings held their stories and those stories meant that they had dignity. And if I really, and that's what I really wanted to work on was dignity. And because that, that was why I cared about historic preservation with this, were the stories that bore dignity of, of individual human beings. And I was like, well, I should work on something that works on human dignity every day. And then a series of sort of realizations very quickly, like within a few instants, instant moments 
uh, happened where I realized that the training I had received in my degree in econ wasn't focused on market or bond markets or trading. It was focused on institutions and the types of institutions that support human dignity. At the time, I thought that was rule of law. And so, um, and, and uh, a, a important professor worked on property rights, which is an important core human right that gives, especially poor people, um, rights to dignity that um, more powerful people might try and deny them. Um, and so I tried to look into that and work in that. It's a very small field in international development, but I finally secured a job in international development, the working on public health. Um, and it was kind of a terrible fit. Um, you know, I like to think big thoughts. I like to enter, I, like, I do like to get my hands dirty. And it was a very, um, it was very compliance focused. It was very focused on making sure that we dealt with US taxpayer payer dollars well. And it was not my cup of tea. And so I started looking for something else. And in a very sort of Washington DC, very God kind of way, um, I was at a birthday party for someone I barely knew who had been at dinner at my um, intentional Christian community house the night before. And I saw this guy that had crashed at my house for like a month while I was getting his feet under him. And I said, Nate, his name was Nate. I was like, Nate, how's it going? And he said, great. And I was like, what are you doing? And he told me, and I said, where are you working? And he said, 21 Wilberforce. And I said, oh, are you guys hiring? And he's like, don't tell anyone. I just took a new job. They'll need to hire somebody quickly. Hmm. But let's talk. And so 20 days later, I accepted my offer. <laughs> that was providential. Yeah. That is such yeah, a DC I mean, story. I, to God, I need a new job, but I don't have the energy to get a new job. I need you to drop this in my lap. And I prayed that two or three times. <laughs> wow. Anyway. Power of prayer. That's a that's a, that's a pretty I mean, fantastic story. Yeah, and and I, I mean, I think don't don't uh, devalue the, that your your actor training, your you know, majoring in theater because a lot of this is all theater. I don't. Someone one time a while ago, I told somebody I was in econ theater double major, and they sort of scoffed and said, "I bet that theater training is really paying off." And I was like. I work in Washington, D.C. It is. <laughs> we all are tap dancing as fast as we can yes. and as hard as we can in whatever it is. If it's a testimony or it's on, on the hill, it's crazy. So that's a, that's a pretty fantastic insight, Nathan. A lot of people, especially new listeners, may not know. My undergraduate uh, was not theater, but it was in music business. Mm. That was my undergrad. Uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And you wouldn't think, certainly on paper, it doesn't look like it fits the DC space. Um, but when I got there, uh, the the game is the same, uh, especially with regard to some of the networking that you talked about. So the dress yeah. code is different. Um, the lingo is different, but that's about yeah. it. There's a yeah. lot of similarity um, yeah. between the performance space and the Washington DC space. Uh, so that's a fun little footnote. I, I, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, so Nathan, uh, given that really, uh, really great background and um, uh, kind of we, we all three of us share that kind of uh, roundabout route into this yeah. religious freedom, uh, this, this religious freedom work. Um, what uh, is on the front burner uh, for 21 Wilberforce right now? Um, uh, you, what, what initiatives um, are hot for you? Um, what are you really trying to advance? A couple of things. Um, I think on a policy space, one of the things we're working on the most right now is the uh, forced labor, the Uyghur Forced Labor Act that's moving through Congress. Um, we're leading um, efforts that are taking place within a coalition of the IRF Roundtable um, to secure more co-sponsors for uh, that legislation. 
that might sound like the most ridiculous thing. Why do you need more people to co-sponsor a thing that says enslaving people because of their religion is bad? But attentions in Congress are short. There's so much going on. It's an election yep. year. And really rallying multi-faith, large multi-faith uh, coalitions around this is important to just get it on people's radar so that they can go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'll co-sponsor it. Those co-sponsors then build into pressure for, uh, as a signaling mechanism uh, for the leaders of the committees that need to move this forward to pay attention to it. Um, and so that's what we're working on as a policy space. Um, it's, you know, um, your listeners may already be aware that there are at least a million Uyghur human beings who are horribly entrapped um, in concentration camps in China. The overall Uyghur population is under what amounts to an open air state prison. Um, and then of course we are becoming increasingly concerned about forced sterilization issues the AP reported on not too long ago. And very significantly Americans um, perhaps complicit in it by using products made by slave labor for people from people yeah. who are targeted because of their religion and belief practices and identities. And what, this is not acceptable and the Congress needs to step up on this and the president needs to sign it into law. I think that's our big policy focus right now, but we have other focuses too, specifically around increasing the capacity of the IRF sector. You know, we're a bunch of small NGOs typically. Uh, we got into this, there's not a lot of money in it to be, to be very frank. Um, and uh, oftentimes the capacity is not necessarily there to do broad scale work. People kind of can get in their um, lanes, which are very, very important. We need people in their lanes, but we need people to poke their heads up and look from side to side and see who's soldiering next to them. Um, and so one of the things we're really working on is helping people do that, take, recognize um, that others beside them are co-laboring. Um, when the COVID-19 pandemic um, was first hitting, you know, some people were sort of retranching, trying to figure out what they were going to do. And we really pressed forward. We worked to set up um, virtual meetings, large scale virtual meetings for the IRF roundtable so that these coalition meetings could continue. Um, in some ways, uh, being virtual has taken them to greater strength as we see people from around the world. Um, I think 700 different people have signed into these meetings, which are take place weekly uh, since the pandemic started from I think 50 different countries. So that's higher levels of engagement from more diverse places than we've ever had before when it was physically bound. Um, yeah. And certainly I miss those wonderful interactions at Ebenezer's coffee shop on Capitol Hill or in the, you know, the Senate dining area. But um, it's also vital that those multi-faith voices, including voices from the front lines of persecution get to be heard. And yeah. so because we were able to step forward and really leverage off-the-shelf products like Zoom, like uh, WordPress, um, things like that, we're able to increase the collaboration amongst these small NGOs and generate a level of force that's far beyond um, the, the, the staff size of the organizations that are represented, but really is representative of the importance of the issue and how salient it is to various human rights issues and various security issues and various prosperity issues. And then finally, leadership. We're working to build leaders um, we just started a global leaders fellowship program. Um, we selected, you know, we believe in taking things, policy is a football game. You take it down the field and you get four chances to make 10 yards and then you celebrate the 10 yards and then you keep going. Right. And leadership is kind of like that too. So we've done an emerging leaders uh, conference in the past. This year we're doing a digital cohort. 
um, again, as an opportunity to press into it to bring more voices to the table. Um, but also uh, our Emerging Leaders Fellowship Program is sourcing um, students who come through the conference or who have engaged in a 21 Wilberforce campus chapter or who were last year our amazing associate, one of our fellows was an amazing associate last year, which is our summer internship program. And so we're continuing to invest in these individuals who have really demonstrated uh, uh, passion about the issue and core capacities at organizing and professionalism. And so I think those three areas are where we're really focused. Um, and so this core policy issue of forced labor, which for an organization named after an abolitionist feels particularly salient. Um, and then also uh, the digital capacity building online platforming um, with our 21 Wilberforce Freedom Center and uh, participating with the roundtable and then leadership uh, capacity building as well. And, um, maybe you could, if you could unpack uh, in one of the three program areas for us, one of the ways uh, that Wilberforce and you in particular have done faith engagement and collaborative faith engagement to develop a program that that's a win for 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 multi, for faith audit, for faith communities. And you, you don't you whether it's country specific or whatever, because a lot of the times people think, like I said, we're different faith groups of faith in action. We only help our own, our, our, our own tribes out uh, or our tribes are the main beneficiaries. Uh, and a lot of the time, the reason why we're all friends and colleagues right now is because we've all worked on issues together and mm -hmm. we've all had wins together collectively. Our organizations have flourished. Our tribes have flourished, but it's because we're, the, the, it's unseen what we do. And, and a lot of times the pat on the back goes to someone else, which is fine, but, this is the moment that that uh, that that I sort of relish in in sort of pulling out of someone from another tribe and saying, "You want to know what we had this issue? This is where it was. We had to engage this, these different faith communities. This is how it was done, and and these this was the impact." So I, maybe that's a, a very large question, but I know that you you know it's uh, you've been involved in deep dive in some of these things, and it all ties eyes to the dignity, the universal dignity mm -hmm. of the human person. So as a unifying right. factor, regardless right. of our differences about how we feel uh, about our different faith right. groups. So maybe you could unpack well, that a little bit because that's a genuine feeling uh, and yeah. it's a genuine action. And some of our listeners are skeptical of well, it. it uh, of, of, yeah. And <laughs> so I, I want to make sure I want to, you know, I want a, a good example that can, that will, that people can, can rub their heads and go, I can't believe that happened. These guys yeah. actually did do something. Yeah. They should be skeptical because um, it doesn't happen enough. Um, yeah. And we haven't created the spaces very well for it to happen. Um, but if I can be a little team Jesus for a minute. Um, Amen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's an inside um, joke because our, and for our listeners, and look, look at Matthew in his face. I'm, I'm, my our publicist is uh, is an evangelical, and, and Matthew's an evangelical. So anytime we have this win, it's Team Jesus. So I'm also and sorry, sorry, John. Uh, I'm very supportive of of other people expressing their faith rights. Um, but I so as a Team Jesus person, I am reminded of and and Muslims have this story in in their scriptures too, of the story I believe. Uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's, I think it's vital for Christians to remember that how crazy it was for Jesus to say that the Samaritan is your neighbor. The Samaritans for Orthodox, and I use the term Orthodox of the time, 
Jews um, were heretics. They were the bad boys. And they were probably of a pagan religion at, at, you know, probably. And so to have someone of stature uh, to challenge Jesus when he says that, um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And then this person, I'm sorry, I'm getting kind of emotional about it. And then this person says, um, oh yeah, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, I'm going to blow your mind on this. Your neighbor is the person who you think is a heretic at best and a pagan at worst. That is your neighbor because this person loved this other man left for dead by all of the religious leaders who you would otherwise honor. And so I think when you really read that story, not just as compassion of someone on, on the road, but really within its historical context of what it means for a Jew to hear that a Samaritan is their neighbor, um, I think it really compels you to start looking at people who disagree with you on fundamental issues differently. Um, and I think it's also incumbent when you get your hands dirty, you know, I don't do a ton of interfaith dialogue. What I do is multi-faith action. I know why I'm motivated. And I trust that when you say you're motivated from your faith, that you're, that you're being honest about it. And then we can work together on things that matter to human beings and human dignity. Oftentimes those things impact both of our tribes. Sometimes it impacts one of our tribes. Sometimes it's a threat to one tribe, but will metastasize into a threat into another tribe later. I think about um, uh, the persecution Tibetan Buddhists had, um, and then the Chinese general, I'm blinking on his name, who really drove that, then went to the Uyghur region, and now he's in the Christian heartland of China. So I think about how solidarity is really important. You know, the famous quote that's at the U.S. Holocaust Museum here in Washington, D.C., First, they came for the trade unionists, then they came for this group, then they came for that group, and I, and I kept not saying anything, and then they came for me, and there was no one to speak. So it's vital that we stand up and we speak for each other. Um, we're called to. Jesus told us to literally carry, that the, the, the person we hated was the person who was going to carry us and put himself at greater risk. And so we are compelled to do the same. But we do need spaces to do that. We need spaces like the International Religious Freedom Roundtable, where it is multi-faith action, where you do show up with your deeply held convictions. You're not asked to set those aside. You're not asked to agree with other people on their deeply held convictions. What you're asked to do is, with those convictions, agree that Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that the First Amendment of the Constitution, um, that various uh, other constitutions around the world, um, that various uh, articles and, and, and you know, academic articles, the things that both of you gentlemen have written, when they say religious freedom for all, they mean it. And so it's vital that we have those spaces to collaborate, to work together. And it's very vital that we work to extend ourselves. Um, So as a small example, there was, uh, I do a lot of work on Nigeria. And there was a secular humanist uh, who's the president of the Secular Humanist Association of Nigeria, who's recently uh, become a prisoner of conscience. He's not committing any crime. Uh, they just kind of arrested him because people in his, uh, in his surrounding, the majority community surrounding him don't like his beliefs. Um, and we were able to organize this 21 Mover Force, um, not a multi-faith action at that point, but all of the secularists and humanists that show up at the round table were really engaging on this. 
And we were able to, through our connections at the roundtable, get some Christian NGOs as well to get together as Christian NGOs and be a neighbor to these secular humanists who we very much disagree with. But we think that you should not be put in prison because of what you believe. And we were able to coordinate a letter to Secretary Pompeo asking him to raise this issue with his counterparts in Nigeria. Um, we have also been able to, um, I mean, that's an example of where we've worked on a by-faith or by-belief issue, but the multi-faith stuff is vital too. If you think back to the um, atrocities committed by ISIS, um, my organization was, there was a bill in Congress. Um, my organization was one of the first organizations to call for ISIS's crimes to be labeled a genocide. And of course, as we're very concerned about the Christian, uh, the violence that Christians received at the hand of Daesh ISIS, um, but there was a bill in Congress that just dealt with Christians and we had been there. We had, not me personally, but my team had been there. We had seen the suffering of other communities and other faith groups. And as a Christian NGO, um, with at the time, uh, one of uh, our senior distinguished fellow, former Congressman Frank Wolf, who's kind of the godfather of this movement as far as the law and legislation is concerned, um, uh, uh, we stood up with a unified voice in my organization and said, no, you have to include the other, the other communities that are suffering. Christian, the violence that Christians su are suffering must be called out. We must describe it as what it is, which is genocide, but we can't only say that because they're not the only group that's suffering. Exactly. And through a lot of work, we passed a massively bipartisan bill that pressured the administration, which is concerned at the time the Obama administration and various administrations are concerned about the encumbrances that come from having declared a genocide. But we were able to push them um, through our NGO actions, through the pressure building in Congress, through the pressure building from key players who knew what was going on in the State Department, through a multi-faith, multi-sector action, get this done for the sake of those who suffer. Um, and, and when you show up to a member of Congress that maybe doesn't believe in or not that doesn't believe, but just isn't a priority. Religious freedom isn't a priority for that member of Congress. To show up with a Muslim and a secularist and a Yazidi and representatives of these different faith groups, um, to show up with them and say, yeah, we're all on this together. Yeah. Eventually the people who are kind of resisting sort of say, well, if everyone's agreeing, why am I resisting? Sure. And so that's why it's very vital that we work together um, on, on those things, both when it's when it's when it makes sense to do it in sort of bilateral faith arrangements like we did with the secularist community and when it makes sense to do it in a multi faith arrangement like we did on um, HR 390 um, in Congress. Nathan, I, difference. I mean, it's yeah. you know, Christians, Yazidis, Muslims, and other religious minorities throughout the region got that designation, which was a big deal and it wasn't it was inclusive. Uh, as opposed to exclusionary, which is, like I said, advocating for each one of our tribes. It could have gone that way very easily. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, so and it was much harder to go the other way. Uh, it took time, but it was the right thing to do. Exactly. And it lowered resistance. We could have rammed something through to really deal with, to confront the Christian genocide. And, and Christians were being genocided. It was, they were suffering genocide. So it was important to deal with the issues that Christians were facing, but they weren't the only ones. And so we needed yeah. to do the, the legwork and the trust building among different organizations and communities to say, no, we have to deal with all of this together because the right. genocide is a crime that's perpetuated by an entity. And that entity wasn't just targeting Christians. 
Right. Uh, that's a really great uh, sketch of, of what this work looks like, Nathan, and uh, mixed with some really fantastic uh, um, rationale, uh, mixed both with the reality of policymaking and, and, uh, and in that space, but also mixed um, and kind of founded on theological truths from the faith that you and I share. Uh, I like you highlighting uh, the Good Samaritan passage in particular. Uh, what I find striking is that uh, is some of the preceding verses, the very the chapter in Luke before the Good Samaritan passage. Uh, what's Jesus? Uh, what's going on with Jesus? He's uh, he's being kicked out of a Samaritan village, and uh, not welcomed in a Samaritan village to the point where uh, James and John ask if they want if they want if if Jesus wants them to call down fire from heaven and to destroy that Samaritan village. Uh, and Jesus, of course, says, says no. And within what looks like maybe uh, a, a day or two, uh, within a couple of villages later, Jesus is, um, with his disciples included, saying, hey, guess what? You know who your neighbor is? Wow. Um, it's pretty striking, uh, given... I didn't realize that. I, I did not realize that timing. Right? And, and, yeah. and that so the gospel like, writers want you to pick that up because they right. put it together. Right. <laughs> I like both it, of these stories. Yeah, yeah, it's within, and of course, I mean, it's separated by chapters, which of course were added after, um, but it's within, you know, it's within probably the same couple, you know, two, within the same two or a couple pages of each other, depending upon what you're reading. Um, and so it's, uh, you got, you explained the context of uh, how Samaritans were, were viewed by the Orthodox Jewish community at the time. Um, but then you have a, a, the additional example of they had just been mistreated and yeah. rejected uh, by a Samaritan village. And w- within, within a couple of villages later, uh, Jesus was like, you know who your neighbor is? Uh, it's pretty striking. I, I think that's so important because um, a while ago, and, and this is a very misguided opinion in my in my assumption, a while ago I heard a story um, when we were working on Uyghur persecution issues, the Muslim community that's highly persecuted in China. Um, I heard about someone who said, why are we working to help them? Aren't the Muslims just trying to kill us? Which is very problematic in and of itself. So setting aside the problematicness of that statement, what you just said, Matthew, is it actually doesn't matter whether, like, you're supposed to show up and work for their fundamental human rights anyway, even if you have been harmed and rejected, even then. And that is the type of thing that builds peace. That is the type of thing that builds um, uh, shalom. That is the type of thing that builds a capacity to work with others and trust. Um, where even if, you know, my secular humanist colleagues post things on Facebook or their organizations post things on Facebook that are offensive to me as a Christian, and yet I can't say, well, you've offended me, so I'm not going to stand up for this fundamental issue that I, that I agree with you on. No, I'm going to press into that and stand up for this secular humanist in Nigeria. Um, so I think that that is just vital to even when... Even when you, whether it's real or perceived or totally made up, if you perceive that you have been slighted by another, you still need to show up and 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 help advance their their rights. It's the right thing to do, and it's and it's the sensible thing to do. It's the thing that actually helps people learn to trust one another and show up and get your back later. So let's do it. <laughs> I I, I want to dial in on one one thing that you said because I always talk about. 
how ISIS is a doomsday cult, you know, Al Qaeda, there's some of these things. And, and, you know, and Christianity's had their own doomsday cults, you know, your Jim Joneses and stuff like that. And, um, and, and I, we're not going to go All down to Netflix dive into that. Right now, so. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I, I kind of, it's actually, Netflix is like, it's become the, 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 it's, it's become a, a, a clearinghouse of all this strange stuff, lots of serial killing, lots of Jose cults and all kinds of other stuff. But when you were talking about you, someone from your tribe saying, aren't the Muslims trying to kill us? And that's problematic. It's, a, it's important, uh, important for, our, for our listeners in both sets of tribes. For, I, I always say I'm not on my heels when it comes to, comes to talking about the Muslim mm. faith. It, it's, you know, we've got the majority of Muslims, you know, uh, more than a billion Muslims that are peaceful, collaborative. They're your doctors. They're, they're in they're you know, right. they're, they're just putting on their pants one leg at a time. But from, from that, if you could unpack that, that, that comment of it's problematic when someone says that because of people labeling yeah. because of certain, of certain issues that have happened. It, and I don't want to lead the conversation. Um, sure. Sort of, I know you own that personally, but yeah. uh, if you could just vocalize a little bit of how you see that so that it's helpful that it comes from someone who's Christian organization, Christian, you know, had yeah. your epiphany, who's, who's advocating for religious groups, just not because, yeah. not because it's just a Christian moment, but it's because you've interacted with these communities and you have experience and you know, and, and you, you know what's going on with, uh, with my tribe, for example, and how your, your tribe should be viewing it. You know, I have friend. Um, I haven't traveled extensively in the Middle East, where uh, there's a high Muslim population as a proportion of the total population. But I have friends who traveled extensively. Um, I hear stories from the Middle East. Um, I hear um, I've traveled in Israel and Palestine. Uh, met multiple Muslims there. Have met multiple Muslims in Nigeria when I've traveled to Nigeria. Um, and have friends who've traveled in the Middle East and in Afghanistan and in uh, uh, Jordan. And uh, I'm not just thinking about you, John, I'm thinking about others as well. Listen to their stories of hospitality. Listen to their stories of people inviting them into their homes in the most extreme circumstances. Um, I'm a cyclist. I get uh, a cycling magazine, and I read a story of, about people... Um, traveling by bike uh, across the Eurasian uh, multi-continent. And they went through Muslim places and they were treated and they were Westerners and they were treated with respect and dignity um, and welcomed into homes. Um, And uh, if anybody really wants to see this sort of playing out in a really beautiful way, uh, that's not really related to the field, I would recommend watching from a Christian perspective, recommend watching a movie called Of Gods and Men. And it's about uh, 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 a violence originating out of some uh, Muslim believers that were violent um, in Algeria and a monastery there. And watch the interactions between the Christian monks and the Muslim community that they are serving. Watch it. And and yes, there's a story about violence there, but if you're not just fixated on the violence, if you also watch the hospitality, if you watch the compassion, and the fact that these monks were there to serve and love their Muslim neighbors, it's just the most profound statement. And I think as a Christian, again, you have to see Jesus telling us to love our neighbors. And then who does he say our neighbors are? 
even the people that we think are dead wrong about their faith. So when you, when you just see violence happening in one group, we like, we all, violence is a human thing. It's a human sin and it exists. And Christians believe that all have, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes through violence. And the first the murder that, you know, Christians believe the first murder happens within our own narrative and with our own, um, uh, within our own context of Christianity of Cain and Abel. And that was a brother killing another brother because he didn't like the way God was, you know, receiving his sacrifice. So, you know, that was in some ways this first sort of religious violence. And that didn't happen in Islam. That happened within our Christian tradition uh, through, through the Hebraic scriptures. And so it's important to remember that these things are complicated, um, that there is immense hospitality that emanates out of the Muslim world. Um, and men's compassion. I'm reminded uh, just briefly of this amazing story where um, in Nigeria, in the middle belt of Nigeria, where violence uh, is falling at least on religious lines, there was a, a village, a large village of several hundred people. And they were being attacked by a band of people that they had thought that they had assumed were Muslims. And they ran to a mosque and there was a very old imam there in his upper 80s or lower 90s, I believe. And he received all of those Christian people into his mosque. Didn't make them convert or anything. He received them in sanctuary. And he stood out there in front of those attackers. And he said, do not harm one of these people. And that is a story that shows that when your own tribe is being bad, you need to stand up to them. When my tribe is being bad, when my tribe says, oh, well, why do we care about the Muslims are trying to kill us anyway? No, that's not true. That's wrong. And we need to stand up to them and, and say that because yeah. it, it's not peace building. And this is about peace building. And I seem to remember a guy who said, blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah. Um, well put, Nathan. Thank um, you for that. I appreciate it. You know, it makes it makes a difference. I mean, I M for M, uh, Muslims for Muslims, focuses on intrafaith, Muslim, mm-hmm. the Muslim faith, and Final. that's because exactly what you're talking about, focusing on the uh, it, do multi faith stuff, but focusing on the Muslim community, unifying it around the Amman message, and mm-hmm. actualizing it. Um, so it's uh, it makes a big difference. This governing our own, doing our own housekeeping, yeah, uh, but uh, but also the idea that there's a faith cooperation that's happening right now and it's, and it's profound, it's saving lives. And if, if, you, if, if, those, if that Christian community, for example, in Nigeria, didn't feel compelled to, to, to trust that imam, they probably would have been on the run and something else would have happened. Yeah, and, and think about how the religious space of the mosque create like you could say someone could point out that well the people that were attacking them were muslims yes but this space created respect and this is why religion is so important in policy this is why religion is so important for peace building this is why religion is so important for development people around the world respect religious space they respect religious leaders they they are core to how people see themselves in the world and how they organize their lives and it is absolutely vital that our policymakers, that our foreign policy 
takes account of this as both uh, uh, important players within the space, but also takes account of the important right of religious freedom for empowering those people to live out their lives and to really seize the space well of organizing and providing sanctuary, of providing um, goods and services to individuals and communities who are underserved. Um, it's, it's vital that we both understand the role religion plays and how people see their lives and how protecting religious freedom then provides the fair playing field for everyone to engage well um, within their so society. You know, I, uh, I always talk, I've, when I was at America Islamic Congress, we helped uh, multi-faith people get released, uh, Baha'i in, in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And we had a, a Muslim advocate in, in, um, in, uh, in Iran that we helped get released. And when I was working, one of the met, one of the major things is going into, and I talked to Christians about this, when you talk about somebody who needs to get released in a Muslim country, you need somebody who knows Islamic law because yeah. <laughs> you can justify you know, I, I, I don't know. We always talk about it. Like, you know, I was a BB and all these other things. I was like, mm -hmm. just, just get, get some Muslims on the team. You know, I, we used to arbitrate over thousands of cases of, of, uh, Islamic law in, in, in Iraq. We were, had a program that, and, uh, and I said, it's very, it's not, it's not that, that it's not easy, but if you know Islamic law and you walk in from the perspective, the perspective that it, 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 that Islam is the highest form of justice, right off the bat, you just knocked everybody's, everybody off their kilter because if you're not going in as a Christian advocate or Zoroastrian advocate or Baha'i advocate, you're walking in as going toe to toe with using Islamic law, which it, it can, if you, if you understand it well, you can navigate someone out of, uh, you can navigate most people out of trouble uh, where you're at an undeniable fact uh, that, that the law is behind you, just like in a yeah. rule of law in America. Yeah. And uh and it's, it's that, co that contextuality is really important. And most people don't utilize that because if they're not collaborating with doing multi-faith collaboration. Well, it's super naive to do that. I mean, having, um, you should always pay attention to the local context. I mean, not paying attention to the local context, not paying attention to the role of religion in a society, whether that shows up in like sort of cultural things or, or law, like Islamic law or canon law or commonly received practices, not paying attention to that is like going to New York City and deciding you're going to use the map of London to get around. Well, you're going to fail. You're not going to be able to get anywhere. And nowhere you go is the place you think it is. So if you're not paying attention to the local context, if you're not, and, and it's, it's not just religion because in a lot of a lot of places religion intersects and overlaps with ethnicity in really important ways um, and there are streams and strains of belief that, I mean just look at how many denominations in Protestant Christianity exist so in America to say nothing of the rest of the world so if you're going to be working on locally context to contextualize things you have to have local voices that understand what's going on otherwise you're using a London map in New York and it's not going to be helpful. That's a, that's a great well, word, Nathan. I appreciate you. Yeah. 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 Um, 
we're running up against the, the clock here, but uh, I want to want to get your response to to this question. Um, we maybe if there's enough interest, we can uh, have you back and have a deep dive on on this best practices issue. Uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that um, you've been involved with 21 Wilberforce um, in the context of leadership development and and best practices and advocacy. And I know you and I have talked talked at length uh, during our in the course of our work in DC. Uh, about the importance of religious orgs, faith-based organizations in particular, um, to embrace uh, some best practices. Uh, and what you, you mentioned earlier is basically that the word professionalism. And we don't really have time to do a deep dive through, through, all, of your, through all of your points, um, but just give us a sense of why that's important uh, for faith-based orgs. I think we've seen some threads of that, some examples of that throughout our conversation in, in your work. Um, the, the, the London map for navigating New York is kind of part of that theme. Um, but if an organization, you know, buys into, say, religious freedom, either domestically or, be, or, or abroad, um, but uh, they don't, they don't, maybe they don't really know uh, how to engage uh, the policy space, uh, or maybe they've tried to engage the policy space and seen failure. Um, what's your sales pitch, basically, uh, for embracing some of the best practices that you recommend? Um, speaking specifically about working on policy in the United States of America, yeah, um, our country is the most powerful nation in the world. And our leaders in Congress have a shocking amount of voice on uh, getting reactions out of foreign leaders. And they listen to your listeners. Um, your listeners working with a small group, a Sunday school class, uh, a group that meets after um, Friday prayers to work on a particular issue, you can turn a congressperson who is not necessarily caring about an issue into either a champion or at least checking the important boxes to move that issue forward. Right. And so it's vital that we learn how to do that so that we don't, so that we steward our citizenship well. Um, we have this incredible amount, this incredible benefit of that we've been blessed with of being born or immigrating to this amazing place. And we should steward that. We should not just leave it sitting there fallow. Um, it's, uh, it's not quite as, I wouldn't want to quite say it's a sin, but, uh, I could be wrong. It could be a sin to just leave it there. (laughs) Um, and the way you do that is by paying attention to the local language. There is a language of policy, right? There is a language in legislation. It's different than the language that's in the state department. Yeah. There's a language that emanates from different sectors. Yeah. And, and this is something that I see coming from both grassroots activists who, um, from this country and also grassroots activists who have a real burning passion for a particular issue right. or grassroots activists coming from abroad who are themselves or their communities or families highly persecuted. There's this sense that I've shown up and I've told you my truth and that should be enough. Yeah. Well, it's not. They have people coming from all over asking for all sorts of things. The, yeah. the leaders in Congress, the staff that serve yeah. members of Congress, the um, officials in the State Department, the appointed people in the State Department. They have all sorts of things. It's a complex world with lots of dynamics and lots of different demands. And if you want to make a difference, 
you need to you need to put on your big boy or girl pants and figure out how to talk to them in a way that resonates you should not show up and just say do something this is bad what are you actually asking them to do if they have to do very little work to do it like co-sponsor a piece of legislation as opposed to hold hearings or write a piece of legislation you know what's your ask have a clearly defined ask and if you don't know what it is show up into coalitions that might have an idea of what it is yeah the other thing that's very important um on this is you know you have to enter multiple streams i just got off a conversation with a community that's persecuted i did this not too long ago and they have done advocacy on the hill but not had a lot of success Part of it's because they haven't, they, they've done direct advocacy only, which is vital. They should be doing that. But they also need to enter other streams. They need to go to the protection and prevention working groups. They need to go to the IRF roundtable. They need to bring up their issues repeatedly over time. Um, you can't just show up on the football field, throw one pass, and when no one receives it, say, well, I guess, I guess uh, this policy thing doesn't work. No, it right. does work. It can yeah. do, do incredible amounts of work. Aja Bibi is free today because various activists didn't stop when uh, she wasn't released the first time. Aja Bibi is free today partially because various groups didn't speak when it was, uh, would have jeopardized her be re- being released. We held back at times. And so it's really important to know when you say something, how you say something, how you mobilize, does it need to be quiet? Does it need to be loud? Maybe it needs to be loud now and quiet later. And those things you find out through relationships. Right. Um, and through, and those relationships are born of learning, having coffee with each other. You know, if, if you have a listener right now who's like, I want to get involved in policy. I want to work on a human rights issue. They, they need to be present. They need to find a coalition where they can sit even just to listen and then ask people for coffee even virtually right now. And in some ways, people trying to break into this field to do this type of really important work have a better opportunity now if they can find that space. Because you can have coffee with somebody virtually and listen to them, listen to their ideas, ask who else they should talk to, and ask them what works and what doesn't work. And some of them will give you good information, some of them will give you less good information, but you'll be able to figure that out over time (laughs) as you look around and see who are the successful organizations, who are able to lead large coalitions, who are able to get policy done. And part of it's by having smart asks um, that are doable, uh, that are within the realm of the decision-making sphere that the individual decision-maker that you're talking to has, and by really understanding the local context, the hyper-local ecosystem of what works within a particular office of the State Department or what works within a particular uh, committee on Capitol Hill and leveraging those different connections in those different sectors. Yeah, well put, Nathan. Uh, that's We're gonna have to leave it there, but that's a really fantastic summary. Um, and folks, if you wanna learn more, visit 21wilberforce.org, I think, is that, that correct? Uh, and uh, Nathan, Nathan is on Twitter at Nathan wine and uh you don't have to worry about spelling his last name uh, to find him on twitter um more information about uh nathan and 21 wilberforce are available at 
crossingphase.com. Uh, obviously, we're here on YouTube, and we're also available wherever find, you find audio podcasts, including uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all the rest. Uh, this has been Crossing Phase with John Pinna and Matt Hawkins. This has been Crossing Phase with Matt Hawkins and John Pinna, a podcast of Roll Top Productions. If you like what you hear and would like to help defray the cost of the show, consider sponsoring us on Patreon by visiting crossingphase.com. Crossing Phase is available on all your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. We'd appreciate your review of our program, especially in the iTunes store. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at mthawk at jtpinna or at Crossing Phase. Music for this episode is courtesy Vajra, whose music is available at thevajratemple.com, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Show notes for this episode and more are available at crossingphase.com.